knocking at the door. It opens. I have been knocking from inside. to the one within all and thank you for opening up your third ear to the universe as you may know this is a show about unblocking and unlocking our infinite potential as creators of our own lives by focusing on art and self-expression we start to learn more about who we really are in the grand scheme of this cosmos and if you're anything like me 2018 was a huge year for widening our perceptions both in recognizing the beauty and harmony in all things and in becoming more aware of the imbalance in ourselves and how it's reflected by death-dealing cultural counterparts. Our returning guest is no stranger to these dynamics at play in our shared consensual reality, and he's one of my all-time favorite voices speaking on Earth these days. Back for a third round, to help us ground ourselves and push around the corner towards a brighter future, he goes by the handle, You're a Soul, as a way to remind us that names ultimately don't matter that much when we all realize who and what we truly are. In past Interverse episodes with You're a Soul, he and I have spoken about social media problems and solutions, including the fantastic free speech network that he's created at Eureka.org, spelled U-R-E-K-A.org, where you can find troves of research and writing compiled by this digital sage. And he's also a prolific poster in the Steemit community, which is another fascinating experiment into alternatives to big corporate controlled social media. I'll link Eureka and Steemit in the show notes, along with the excellent previous two episodes we've had with Your Soul, where we've talked about compassionate anarchy, channeled information, animal to human telepathy, and a lot of other great and timeless topics. Today, we've loosely planned to speak about the cultural mythology surrounding aging, disease, and death, and the potential to evolve past these limitations, and perhaps just why we have these life-negating aspects in our reality field to begin with. We can always make a difference in our energy and health with imagination, intention, and action. So let's remind ourselves right now to activate our self-healing. If you are in a place where you can close your eyes and pause for a moment, go ahead and take this time to turn your sight inward and begin breathing in a natural but deliberately deeper way. Really sensing what it feels like for the breath to enter your body and leave it. Now imagine whatever makes you smile. No need to make it complicated. If you ask your mind to provide you with something to smile about, it will. There's always a nice feeling in our core when we have a true smile. And feeling is what we're looking to develop right now with this sort of practice. Focus on the warmth and glow you're creating inside yourself. Ask yourself to send all the stress, fear, and worry that you might be carrying right into that fiery furnace. Repurpose what was harmful into fuel for your journey. 
This is a magic power you have, and if you make a ritual of this type of grounding, you will most likely be helping your body do its own self-healing work by relaxing and releasing bound-up tension, stress, and energy in your musculature. Like any ability, you'll get better at this the more times you do it, and I like to remind you because I need the reminders myself. But now that we've got our inner sight properly dialed in, we can get to the main event. Please mentally project some vibes of welcoming gratitude towards our incredibly awesome guest, the bringer of balance and harbinger of healing, our very excellent friend known as Yura Soul. Thanks for coming back to the show, man. Welcome. Hey, aloha. Awesome, amazing introduction. Thank you. That's really, really uh, got my uh, third eye firing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a strategy I figured out sometime in the last year that if I put some intention and creativity into that part, it really like blasts off the talk with rocket fuel instead of just being like, hi, welcome. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And no, I, I definitely think we should keep doing that. It's pretty productive. And I'm, I'm almost a little bit blown away by it. I think I need to go and uh, relax for about 10 minutes just to absorb the awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know where we could start because we have such a huge constellation of things that fall under the umbrella of healing whenever you're taking a holistic approach to looking at these things. But overall, what I'm most excited about is actually a documentary that I saw that you shared an awesome, not very long, about an hour long YouTube documentary called Vegan 2018. And before anyone runs away screaming because I said the <laughs> word vegan, let's maybe start by talking about some of the really positive things that have happened in that movement and also maybe before that, we could start with what would you say to somebody to get them to keep listening if they're normally going to just shut something off because it brings up uh, this topic? It depends why they're blocking it out. And some people have met vegans who are quite militant and aggressive. You know, they, they kind of tar everyone who labels themselves as a vegan with the same brush and they just don't want any more of that. Some people are very heavily entrenched in their reasons for eating meat. And, you know, it's too challenging for them to even consider that they're involved in massive suffering so they just block it out but ultimately the solutions come within us when we start to feel more compassion and open the mind and open the heart and, and be more heart-centered so really it's a question perhaps of helping people discover that and then letting the rest take care of itself so perhaps it's an issue of guiding people into their heart without even mentioning veganism i think that makes sense because that's basically how the shift away from eating meat occurred for me okay I was guided towards my true feelings about it, mostly by myself, but also by my, my current partner. Whenever we met, she was already very compassionate towards all beings, especially what we call animals. And I was introduced to just a few th simple things like meat substitutes, stuff that's probably not ultimately for the best because it's kind of processed, but definitely is something that could help you transition away. And then as soon as I opened up my mind to the possibility that maybe I could try a different diet, pretty much the very next thing that happened was I opened myself up to watching like one documentary. I think it was Cowspiracy, which is a little over the top even, but to just open my eyes to the actual reality of factory farming and <laughs> the impact it has on our consciousness as a planet. And then the next experience that followed that about the same time was just being on a walk and passing by some cattle that were barbed wire fenced in right next to the walking path and looking at them in their eyes and thinking, how do I justify killing this creature for my food when I wouldn't do that to a dog? Because I yeah. feel like the dog has feelings. 
this thing is looking at me with intelligence. It looks, I feel no different than any other spirit of a creature that I'm around, whether it's human or an animal. You know, there's an isness, there's an iness in there. It doesn't matter the complexity of the thoughts within that being. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned when we were talking previously about telepathy with animals, I've actually experienced telepathy, let's say, with, with a cow you know, and a horse. And so from my perspective, they're actually dramatically more intelligent than I even imagined than the, most people would imagine. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even sure it's a case that they that they are just dramatically simpler. I think I think they're not really that different from us at all. They just have a different body. I mean, they've, they've gone on a different journey through the cosmos and it's just unfortunately resulted in them being exploited a lot. Yeah, I think I can agree with that, that it's not necessarily simpler as in lesser, but perhaps <laughs> there's definitely a lesser degree of freedom than we humans enjoy in terms of what we can create and manifest on the planet in these forms. And so it's yeah. all the more disturbing that what we're manifesting uh, largely is so much destructive behavior. And we have to realize that that type of thing doesn't begin to shift until we change it in our lives. And I as you've pointed out in some of your really excellent video series on evolving, balancing, and healing on YouTube, that the intention decision is the real point of things that changes things. Yeah, I mean, intention is deeper than thought in a sense. It's, for me anyway, thoughts arise in response to the intentions I'm holding. I mean, there's a circle, there's a cycle there. They each influence each other, but your intentions are a bit more let's say, weighted or important in that process. And even if you have confusing thoughts or you're not sure exactly what's true, your intentions can help guide your thoughts back towards the direction you want to go in. And, and so having the intentions to heal, balance and evolve, I've found to be the ones which are most potent in the ability to help us obviously heal, balance and evolve. But that means bringing balance and, and just always bringing us back to a space of guiding us towards what's going to work versus what's going to mislead us or kind of direct us towards wasting time and energy and so on. These, these three never really seem to fail. So in terms of healing, I'd like to talk about maybe your own personal healing journey that I don't think we've touched on in past episodes about your overcoming, I think it was a back or spinal injury from a car accident. Yeah. So that time I, I basically, I was working near London and I didn't really enjoy the job very much. And I was quite stressed out because of experiences I'd had a few months before relating to very unusual experiences like uh, extraterrestrial contact, apparently, and things like that. You know, the normal problems you have when you're commuting from work. <laughs> basically, <laughs> I um, was coming home from work and I was very, you know, I was very tired and I wasn't happy. I hadn't been sleeping very well. And the traffic was very, very, very busy and heavy on that road. Basically, I kind of got a bit angry. And, you know, when the traffic's very busy, it's stopping and starting. I was in the fast lane and I sped up a bit too much, more than I should have done. And the traffic in front of me stopped quite quickly. And I stopped. I literally just stopped, you know, one centimeter away from the car in front. I didn't ski it. It was like I took it, you know, I was going as fast as I possibly could without deliberately or actually causing an accident. And I stopped. I wouldn't normally do anything like that, but I just, you know, just reached the point of frustration and, that, and I did that. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's okay. It's fine. And I just sort of started to calm myself down. And I looked in the mirror and there was a truck behind me that hadn't seen me stop or hadn't seen the traffic stop at all and just wasn't even slowing down. And he actually crushed the back of my or hit the back of my car, moving about 60 miles an hour. It's quite a big truck and it had a, a forklift truck in the back. Um, I guess, yeah, are you, is that a phrase you recognize in America, forklift truck? Yeah, we have those. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically quite a lot of weight and pushed my car into the car in front and kind of squashed it. But in those two seconds where I was able to see the truck coming, 
I basically, you know, was trying to calculate what to do and really just concluded there was a, you know, 80% chance I was about to die. So really I just had the decision, do I get out of the car? Because I've got, you know, a tiny window. And I figured if I tried to do that, I probably definitely would die because, you know, I wouldn't be protected by the car or the seatbelt. So I just decided to relax because I knew that was, well, you know, often all you can do in those situations. And I knew that sometimes people bite their tongue off. So I deliberately sort of tensed my jaw to stop myself doing that. And yeah, and, and you know, the, it hit and I sort of looked down and and I was okay, relatively okay. And I was quite amazed. And I just thought, wow, opened the door and got out, sat by the side of the car and looked around, looked at the guy driving the truck. No, no one was seriously hurt. And I was just, you know, in shock, but, but basically thankful and also angry that this had happened. But I didn't do anything. I just sat there and, you know, the rest of it is as you can kind of imagine. But as it turned out, the uh, my driver's door was the only one that opened on the car. All the rest were just squashed. And, you know, I don't, don't you know, physically speaking, I'm still surprised that, that, that I survived that. Some people would say that, it, you know, it was you create your reality. And so therefore, I just didn't want to die, which is, you know, probably true, to be honest. That's actually a subject I want to maybe move towards, too, is relaxing and not having fear. And also the, the potential that's even been discussed by quantum scientists that it's possible that we don't even actually die from our own perspective ever. And that only other people appear to die from our perspective, but in our personal universe, whatever needs to happen, happens that, that we make it, you know, even miraculously. Yeah. I mean, my, my explanation, I've got two sources of good information from that on that, which are both channeled and, and also my own personal experience, but yeah, I'll get, definitely we can get to that. I think it would help if I just sort of chronologically go through it a little bit, just in terms of the actual heat. So basically I got out and looked down, I had a little cut on my leg and that was about it. And, uh, you know, eventually got to the hospital to get x-rayed and they, they x-rayed me and said, there's no bone injuries or anything. You know, you're okay. So uh, I was like, oh, all right, that's interesting. Amazing. So I went home, but gradually over time, I started getting more and more pain in my neck and, you know, it's whiplash basically just slowly creeping up. But it got to the point, uh, the insurance company sent me to a physiotherapist who really made it worse, to be honest, or she certainly didn't help. And at this point, I didn't really know very much about healing the body or healing in general, I hadn't really had much need to to really be forced to focus into it. I was very busy doing other things. But, but gradually over time, I reached the point where I couldn't turn my head at all. Literally, I had to turn my whole body just to look left or right. And I was in pain, you know, 24 hours a day. And I lost hearing in my ear. I had tinnitus, you know, quite bad ringing in the ear. And I still have actually got that. But So, yeah, I mean, it really reached the point where it was really, really affecting. I mean, I was disabled, basically. It was, it was taking me to the point where I was almost suicidal, to be honest. It was... It was extreme suffering. And, you know, but the, in a way, the worst thing was that to anyone else, they couldn't really see any injuries. So, you know, people, some people, you know, that, you would, that I was close to, you know, even probably just assumed that I was making up for some reason or it was just like a mental illness or whatever. But I went to see various different professionals and, you know, they acknowledged that I had these problems. And I saw a neurologist and different surgeons and things to see if they could help. And I wasn't really looking for surgery, but that was where I was sent. And in the end, I finally found uh, an osteopath in London who, who did some adjustment, adjustments. This was a few years later, and she gradually started to release the, the, the issues a bit, but it didn't really properly work. And I, so I, was, I started getting to learning how to heal myself. And this is when I started reading the book series called Right Use of Will, which is really the most powerful healing information that I'm aware of. And it's channeled and uh, it's primarily about emotional healing and also psychological. But I mean, it's complete holistic healing, but it is specifically focusing on doing that through psychological and emotional processing. And that started to help me, but it's a long process, you know, learning how to do that. In the end, I started doing yoga as well and that strengthened me, but I could feel it still wasn't really getting to my neck issue. 
And then one day I went into to the osteopath and, you know, I said, oh, I just realized I've got this vertebra in my neck in between my shoulders that's really sticking out. It definitely wasn't like that when I was younger. It's definitely not in the right place. And she felt it. She said, oh, no, that's normal. And I could feel with certainty that that was the root of why I couldn't turn my head properly. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is somebody who's comparatively skilled compared to most of the people I've seen. And even she's saying things that I know are completely wrong. You know, I stopped going to see her. I just tried to focus on healing myself. And I didn't really, I did fasting, I did diet, you know, diet change and, and all, everything I did helped me, but it didn't quite get to the root issue. And, you know, in the end, I really just gave up because I, I you know, I just couldn't figure out what to do. And it was a few years after, really, that I eventually, I was visiting a friend in London and he had a friend, an older, she's like 70 years old, and she, she was a teacher of the Feldenkrais method, which is a method of moving your body into unusual positions uh, to try and create changes which you know which you can't really create in other ways and you know i like doing different things that i've never heard of so i gave it a go with her and it's just kind of a lot of lying on your back and moving your shoulders and arms into really odd positions and i did feel a little bit of a benefit from that and it helps you to think a bit more differently which is kind of key um just getting you out of your old habits and but it still didn't release me properly and and then i realized at a certain point you know after trying all this stuff Oh, I haven't really been doing what these books, right, used to will have been teaching me. I, I've sort of taken it in, but I haven't fully been doing what it's saying. And then really what it's saying is you've got to stop controlling your emotions. Every, you know, any part of you that is controlling an emotion, you just stop doing it. Um, and I've done that to a certain extent, but I haven't properly completely done it. So I was lying on the floor in, in a session and I just was like, right, I've had enough of context anymore. I'll just do what it says. And I just completely released all control and just screamed and rolled around. I didn't really care whether the police came or whatever for about, I don't know, a few minutes. And it's not long. And then I felt this shift. And then I stood up and she looked at me and she said, wow, you're, you're an inch taller. And I didn't really even know what to say. And I just sort of turned my head and suddenly my head could move completely perfectly. And I realized in that moment, the healing had happened in literally less than a second, just an instant. And I understood everything, the cause of all the problems. And it was essentially that during that car accident, because I had a couple of seconds to know that this was about to happen, this accident, a lot of fear and anger had built up in me to protect me and to, you know, just fight or flight, I guess, response, you would call it. And I, because of the shock of the moment, and, and actually because I was frightened of freaking out on the road there in case the police arrested me or something like that for attacking the other driver or whatever, I was really controlling those feelings. And they got locked in me, completely locked. My mind was locking them, frozen. And that had the knock-on effect of freezing the muscles in place in my neck as well. So obviously the end result was gradually I lost movement and motion in that part of my body. And it was only when I really just let go of all of the mental control that those feelings could surface and I could scream and let out all of that stuff. And the energy got moving again and everything started to work again. And, you know, I'm sure there's many people who have been in those kinds of injuries and had similar injuries where they've ended up having surgery or, you know, who knows what, and lots of drugs and pain suppressant and so on. When all really they needed to do was just to cry a lot and punch the bed properly for, you know, a few minutes or even a few days, however long it takes, to, to sort of melt the frozen energies, if you like. So the moment that I did that, I mean, I knew in, in that fraction of a second that, I, that a big change had happened. And so I knew at that point that physical manipulation has its place, but it's not the answer to these kinds of problems. It's, it's just a way of avoiding you having real emotions, basically, which is it's not something that we, we do deliberately. We don't plan that consciously, but that is what we're actually doing. We make the choice to block out our feelings because we think they're not socially acceptable or... You know, we, we won't fit up to the model of the image of who we think we are if we show fear and that kind of thing. But unfortunately, if you don't just get real with your emotions, then 
you, they will end up getting real with you in the sense in that, you know, you, you'll become that weaker version of yourself because you blocked out the fear, not because you had the fear in the first place. So it's really caused me to challenge some of the very deep beliefs and very long held viewpoints that have been prevalent in human society for probably over thousands of years. And I've just realized really that our, our society is heavily structured to enforce these kind of limiting beliefs. You know, manners even, even you know, the idea of manners, that's all part of the same control system. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, if you were to move in this position at the dinner table and maybe knock someone's elbow, maybe they're going to get angry with you. And we wouldn't want to get angry at dinner. So therefore, manners say you have your arms in exactly this position. You know, the whole sort of, it's outdated now, but there are whole books written on that kind of etiquette for eating. And But we still do have our own versions of manners. And really, they're all just there to, to stop us triggering each other's feelings because we're frightened of what happens. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and now we're getting even more of a snowflake society where you, you really can barely say anything in terms of uh, certain people without them easily getting offended. And that's like a weird thing because it's like this intellectual offense, but it has nothing to do with their actual emotional intelligence uh, a lot of times. What I'm talking about sort of like – I guess you would call them social justice warriors or PC police, which I don't even think all of that is real. I think a lot of it is just like with the veganism thing. There are anti-consciousness forces that try to paint people who are interested in terms of things like social balance or, or veganism as militant, you know, blaming people for death threats against dairy farmers and things like that yeah. that are pretty much not even real in terms of coming from actual vegans. Although that's kind of a, a side subject. I'm very, very interested in your story that you just explained because it totally fits in with everything I've been mm. learning about how our bioenergy actually works. So there's some simple physics mechanics that you can apply to this type of I guess, description of emotion and healing and things being trapped in the body. It's in terms of conservation of energy, the, you know, the mm -hmm. idea that there's no actual loss of energy, it just changes forms from one to another. So you have this huge impact on your body. And then there's also your own, the inner impact of your own uh, thoughts and fears and anger about the situation. But the actual physical energy of the impact is hitting your body and it's absorbed into it. And whenever you're letting it out, it's like you're converting it from where it was originally kinetic energy. And then it was potential energy and, or even, I guess you could call it like ten, tensile type of energy because it is involved in the musculature actually being seized up and tensed up. That's, you know, to even do that, to hold it in place rigidly requires energy to make it rigid. Yeah. And when we're looking at what's actually rigidizing, it has to do with the water in the body. And we know from experiments in like the uh, Miyamoto, was it Miyamoto? The, the Japanese guy who did the water experiments that we know that ideas and feelings can be held in water and we're mostly water. So it's totally possible that <laughs> both the fear and anger about the impending impact and then the kinetic energy of the impact all go into our body whenever something like that happens and it's just held there in the form of rigidity and in the form of i guess a vibration in the body's water so it totally makes sense that if it can convert from kinetic into that type of stored energy then it can also be converted from that into something like screaming or <laughs> even meditative movement, I think it has a big role in that. Like you said, yoga helped to an extent. So yeah, this is really, really good stuff.
I think if you look at, it's funny that you mentioned snowflakes because snowflakes actually tell the story quite well. But, you know, everything can be judged against uh, or it can be allowed to be as it is. And, you know, we have these ideas of now because of common communication and trolling, basically, that snowflakes, oh, you know, that means you're weak or something. But if you look at a snowflake under a high power microscope, it's quite an amazing thing to look at. And you'll see lots of sacred geometry in there, actually. And, uh, the snowflake, obviously, it's, it's a kind of trans, uh, transformation of what was once liquid into a form. It's quite reminiscent of cymatics, for example, um, when you send sound into liquid. Different frequencies, you get amazing patterns coming out. These are all kind of lessons in our own energy. And ultimately, we're vibrating. Every part of us is vibrating. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, in a sense, we are our music. Our whole body is a type of music. So if a physical force comes in and, and actually forces the structure of our music to change, then we're going to hit some bum notes kind of thing, and we're going to have to adapt to that. But, yeah, there is definitely a transformation happening that can be physical or non-physical, thought-based. Everything is a big kind of flow, and, and I definitely relate to emotions as being very much like water. So, for example... If you have a river, let's say, um, as long as the water's moving, then you've got nutrition coming in. The water's not going to freeze over. You've got life. You've got events happening. You've got movement. Uh, but as soon as it's frozen and things stop moving, then no more nutrition can come in and everything's going to die. And, and it's really the same for our own energy system and our, and our own energy motion or emotion. As long as our emotions are, are locked up and not moving, then we are going to die, basically. Stagnation, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So if you think of emotion, energy motion as being akin to water, and obviously our body is largely water, which makes total sense. I mean, you could take it the other way and say that maybe rivers are emotional. I mean, you know, that's uh, something to think about. Our ancestors would have said that they definitely had a personality, the rivers that yeah. they were connected with. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you go, down, if I go down to a river, um, and I presume it's for the same for everyone else, and just sit and connect outside of the electrical fields of my computer and machines, and things uh yeah i can definitely feel the force and the electromagnetism and qualities of the aliveness that's in there that is its own thing i'm not sure if that's to do with me having a past life in a, in a, in a native american tribe although they weren't called that then a long time ago or whether it's just just because i'm just open to that but i'm glad that you brought up the native americans actually because that's one of the things that i had in mind to mention okay. was that if you pay attention to native american elders especially that were speaking and being, you know, having their words written down by their tribes members in the earlier 20th century, they actually would talk about having memory of their grandfathers and that generation, the ones that were encountering the European settlers being up to 120 years of age with still having youthful longevity, completely able to still do everything that they would want to do in life. Okay. And being in a totally different, like this is a common story amongst different native tribes that their ancestors before the Europeans came totally had a different type of health and they didn't age in the same way. And there's also reports that like they would be encountering natives in the middle of winter in extremely cold temperatures wearing basically like no clothing mm -hmm. and able to generate their own biological heat and contain their homeostasis just like you would see with maybe an advanced practitioner of meditation or qigong being able to melt snow around their body. Yeah. You know, that's something that we've possibly seen if you've looked up this type of thing. So I just think it's a really interesting way to segue into the conversation about whether or not 
life and death and aging, is it actually necessary? Is it actually even natural? I, I love that you bring up the question of whether or not it's even natural. And I'd like you to elaborate on that. And I think I can prove to you in, in any way that we need to prove it that death is not natural, even just using words, which is a bit odd. I mean, you know, it might not be good enough proof for a physicist or a chemist, but if we look at the word nature itself, you know, is, is death natural? Well, nature, the root of nature is as in is with natio, the French for birth. So ultimately, the word nature relates to birth. So if you apply that to, you know, trying to understand what is and isn't natural, then one way of looking at it would be to say things that are birthed are natural and things that aren't birthed are not natural. And it doesn't make the unnatural things bad or wrong, but it just means they're just not natural. You know, animals, insects, whatever it is that have a birthing process, and we can, you know, maybe agree or disagree about what exactly birthing means. But my, my kind of perspective on it is that if natural is relating to birth, then, you know, death is the opposite of birth. So therefore, logically speaking, on that basic level, then death... It must logically be unnatural, as it's the opposite of the meaning of life. And the meaning of life is birth from a sort of etymological perspective. So just that very simple. I mean, we can we can discuss how these words came to be and whether they really actually prove anything at all, you know. But at least you can say that from our word, from the logic of the basis of our words, wherever that came from, the language is structured to show you that the death isn't natural. Basically, if we look at it from the sort of biochemical perspective, and I'm not a biochemist, the ultimate kind of science that I pay attention to, which is written by biochemists and doctors, which is not mainstream at all, reminds me that each cell has a requirement in terms of its nutrition and its electrical input and oxygen and so on. And if we don't, if the cells don't get that requirement, then they're going to get ill and die, basically. And there's a good doctor here. I mean, I've got a book next to me called, um, he's got a book called Healing is Voltage by Jerry Tennant. He's quite old, but he, he's got an amazing story. I mean, maybe you could even interview him. He, he was an eye doctor and he worked on some of the early, uh, I think it was laser treatments for eyes. And before they really knew all the details about them, they didn't realize that when a surgeon was working on someone's eye using this technology, that the laser didn't kill bacteria and viruses on the eye and, and basically he got a brain infection from one of his patients and he ended up, you know, basically unconscious for almost 20 hours a day, I think. He only had a short window every day to actually be conscious and think clearly. And his doctor said, there's nothing we can do if you just go home and, you know, presumably die basically. And but he being a doctor kind of was like, well, I've got three or four hours a day, however long it is, to try and figure out how to heal myself or I'm going to die. Obviously he was highly focused as a result of that. And he came up with the idea of, well, if I could fix, if I could work out how to heal one cell, then I could maybe figure out how to heal all the cells, which is you know, pretty logical. And so he started studying cells and he realized that there was a huge gap in understanding regarding electricity in the body. And I'm sure, I'm sure there will be specialists around the world who have realized this and done their own research, but they're probably not very well known. And actually, a friend of mine was, was studying biochemistry not long ago, and I was looking through the books and looking through the energy cycle of ATP and these things, Krebs cycle. And I don't profess to understand all the details of it. It's very long and complicated. But one of the things I noticed was in the, in, the, in the chain of energy processing, there was a lightning bolt in the diagram. And I kind of said, oh, what's that? And, oh, that's energy. And, and it just didn't really explain what that was. And, and what he, he what, um, Stan... Jerry Tennant, sorry, the doctor in this book, Healing His Voltage, he mentions that and he says, well, yeah, I mean, medical science just sort of overlooks that. But basically, electricity forms a much bigger part of the health of the body than we typically realize. And he's describing how 
a healthy cell has a certain voltage in it um, in between the inner and outer layers, as I understand it. An unhealthy cell has a different voltage and a cell that's healing itself has a, a sort of a draw. It will draw on lots of electricity to relatively to, to heal itself. So if a, if a damaged cell has access to the surplus electricity it needs and also the nutrition and also is able to have all its toxins removed, then it will heal. If it doesn't, then it won't. He's got this concept. He, he maps out the, the human body as, a, as an electrical device and he describes how chains of muscles operate as like a battery pack of electricity and they have piezoelectricity generation potential like a crystal does and they follow the meridians and, and these chains of muscles stack up to power each organ and he also relates how acid and alkaline ph balance relates to voltage as well and ultimately so if you have a, a sick cell then it's going to be acidic and many people have pointed out but that, but that equates to an actual ele- electronic state as well so he's approaching it rather than saying, oh, we'll just eat all these alkalizing foods. He's, he's saying, well, maybe we can just work on it using electricity instead. And he claims to have done that successfully by, by adding electrons into certain meridian lines and, and healing organs as a result. So this is one of the most interesting things that I've encountered in the last sort of year or two regarding healing. And I'm still working through the book. I haven't really put it into practice, but, but there's a few interesting things in there that most people could relate to or test, I guess. But one of the things is he says that when you ground your body and touch, your, touch the earth, you you transmit or you have an electron exchange happen between you and the earth so you can actually reduce inflammation and, and accelerate your healing just by connecting to the earth with your bare skin uh, but he highlights that animals obviously generally when they're outside are doing that all the time so when people have a pet dog for example and the human lives in a house and they hardly ever touch the earth and then the, the dog runs around outside it goes for a walk in the park and then, you know, it gets highly energized and comes in and sits on their lap. Basically, the dog is then charging up the human, actually transmitting energy to the human as a sort of energy collector. And, you know, this is when they say a dog is a man, is man's best friend, you know, maybe it's more accurate to say something like dog is, um, I don't know, man's battery pack. On more than just that one level, too, because the person takes actual, like, pleasure and emotional enjoyment out of interacting with the dog. Or maybe that's part of what makes it enjoyable. Yeah. I don't know. It's, but I think it has, for most people, I think it's a real empathy with the dog, though, that they feel that gives them that good feeling. And so that the good feeling that you get from them also is a booster. So they're definitely a battery. Yeah. <laughs> but I never thought about it in terms of uh, the the grounding deal. I, I I try to ground a lot, but I better make sure that I do it every day so that I'm not draining my dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have a dog here, so I can't really test it too much. But I mean, I think everyone can just go out and connect to the earth more, basically. And, and you should start to feel uh, some kind of a difference in yourself. And especially if you're doing exercise outside, basically just be the dog. Just go around and run in the park or do whatever you need to do. And, you know, you're going to get the benefits that you would have got from a dog, I guess. And I think I think part of the reason why we, we smile at children and, and cats and dogs when they're having fun is because we want to be like that. You know, we like the innocence of it and we like the energized kind of simple pleasure of rolling around and doing silly things and it feels good. Yeah. And to the, the piezoelectric aspect of our musculature, that is literally generating energy by moving. Yeah. So it's kind of like the old saying, you got to spend money to make money. Yeah. That's what you have to, you got to move to get your energy flowing and generating. That's what like practices like Qigong, the word itself or the phrase Qigong itself literally translates to mean something like needing 
bread, like you would need bread, but okay. you're needing your musculature to produce energy, like wringing it out in a way. I so see, yeah. yeah, I think those are really big, really big realizations to be making <laughs> in this uh, conversation, hopefully for people that it's a lot simpler than doctors and medicine tend to make it out to be the electric part of yourself. You, you can sense that, like whether or not you feel good or bad is a good indicator about, of whether or not you're acidic or alkaline. You can just start paying attention to small things. But then one last thing on the subject of healing I wanted to ask you about is the idea that consciousness and paying attention to something with your awareness actually energizes it too. And this is something that I kind of discovered independently. And I think that it sounds like you discovered this independently through experience as well with hurt. You told this story about smashing your same knee up yeah. repeatedly. And uh, yeah, talk about how you sort of had a, like that epiphany moment because uh, this is a huge realization for me. For me, it was just smashing my toes all the time that <laughs> I figured out the same exact lesson. Okay, excellent. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different ways that, I, the, that anyone can realize these things. And no, I did. I've, you know, I've done them in a few different ways, but that, that time with the knee was really the biggest, biggest kick in the butt kind of thing, or in a sense to, to make me really wake up to this. So the actual process of feeling something in you is the process of your mind entering that aspect and, and connecting with it and, and I, I'm not sure if I would really say that you were actually sending energy there that may be true but I think from my perspective it's more I would say it's a bit more like we should have energy everywhere and we should be feeling everything all the time but we aren't we're, we're filtering a lot of it out so in a way we're just kind of tuning into that one part and allowing the energy to be as it should be so I suppose if we were completely healed, even if we kept hitting our knee, we'd feel the pain temporarily and then it would stop and we wouldn't need to have actually done anything to make that happen But because we would already be in the state of unconditional love and unconditionally accepting all of these feelings all the time anyway. Maybe we would be quite in that way. I wouldn't say the word immortal, but I mean, if we can be immortal, then it would have to be something like that, wouldn't it? I mean, if, if you were immortal, you would probably still need to feel some pain so that you didn't constantly do stupid things. But at the same time, you wouldn't be stuck with pain and, and any injuries you got would, would recover very quickly. But yeah, that story in essence was I kept hitting my knee on the same exact spot, on often on the same object. It was at the end of my bed, wooden bed. And over the, I don't know, maybe about a year, I did it four or five times. And, and it, every time it was getting more and more painful. It was, and the last time it literally was cripplingly painful. And, and I just collapsed basically. And it's just, I can't even describe the pain. I've only had a couple of other experiences like that where there was that much pain. It's, it's the point where you can't really have any more pain. And, and at that point, it was a similar thing to what I described earlier on where, where I screamed and, and my neck readjusted. It was the same kind of realization. Oh, yeah, I've been working with all this, this emotional processing and healing, but I still haven't fully integrated it to the point where whenever I hurt myself, I do what I've been guided to do. So instead of just lying here and rolling around and screaming and rubbing my leg, I'm going to actually do what I was told to do, which is feel into the pain specifically instead of trying to get away from it and send love to that area and just accept that part of myself and just be at peace and accept that I have crushed some cells and they're not, you know, feeling too good and if I can see what happens. So I did that and literally within two or three seconds maybe or even less, the pain completely stopped and there was nothing, it was like it had never happened. It was like I never hit my knee. And when I'd done that before, it had taken, I, I'm not sure, but hours or maybe over 24 hours to completely stop hurting uh, and it just turned off like that. So again, that was another example of where um, accepting emotions instead of blocking them out, basically turning heartlessness into heart and lovelessness into love actually produced immediate healing. I think most people can relate to that in the sense that, I mean, for example, if you have a baby that's crying 
and, and you know you pick it up and rock it and kind of help it feel better it's maybe going to stop crying and it feels better and and it's just an extension of that except for it also reaches into physical structure and damage as well beyond just immediate psychological and emotional needs yeah that's beautiful it's so true too i've definitely like smashed the crap out of my toe before on a chair and gone howling and jumping around with pain and then later on did the exact same thing maybe worse and looked down at my toe it felt the pain as much as i could like paid attention to it and tried my hardest to not block it out and like you say instantly it starts to dissolve and weirdly enough this is so subjective so it's not like i can scientifically prove this but there'll be many times where i'll get a bang or a nick or do something that should have possibly left like a, a pretty good bruise or maybe even a sprain. And I'll just be with the pain for a moment and tell myself I'm fine and that it's okay that this happened. And <laughs> instead of thinking, shit, now I'm hurt. Like I was thinking about your car wreck, possibly some of the storage of that pain could have come through the very fact that you were going through the hoops of normal hospitalization and examination and then convincing you that you're messed up a little bit and making you hold on to that idea. I do think there is some energy that's flowing with your attention and awareness. Like you're saying, maybe in balance, we would have that type of awareness of our whole body at the same time. I think that's definitely plausible. When you look at a martial artist who's able to break bricks with their forehead, when a normal person doing that would smash their skull in, mm. there's definitely something going on with the directing of their chi, as yeah. they describe it. I actually went to a, a, an event just the last couple of days organized by the Basis Project in Britain, which is kind of a, a group of people who try to... It's a historic thing where they try to find out what's going on in military bases underground. That's a whole other subject. But um, as a result of that, I met some interesting folks there. And one of them was a physicist who claims to um, have some very interesting ideas about physics. And so we ended up talking about the very sort of microscopic nature of reality. And, and he has these ideas. I'm not sure exactly if they're exactly right, but but he has this way of describing how everything works and everything fits together. And from the perspective that everything is one, there's absolutely no reason at all to think that we can't become basically bulletproof in that sense. I mean, it's a bit like the Matrix, if you want to think of it like that. But I mean, ultimately, we are the bullet. We are the wall. We are the drill. We are everything that could harm our body. So how are we having this experience of finding that parts of ourselves can destroy our body? In a way, it doesn't make logical sense. And very much like the movie The Matrix, I think a lot of it is it's only the belief that these things can harm you that opens the door to them harming you. And it doesn't mean to say that if you suddenly stop believing that they can harm you, that definitely they can't harm you. But I would suggest that that would be step one, is to just accept that actually maybe there's a possibility. Well, there's an element of reality that's consensual. And it's so the fact remains that we're capable of performing heartless acts on each other and even hurting each other. But, you know, when it comes to being completely alone and only you're the one perceiving it, it's kind of like the observer effect becomes more possible and empowering in terms of... Uh, not being injured by things that maybe otherwise could have left lasting damage. That's just such an interesting topic. And I'm also really interested in the topic of alternate physics and what you are describing with the basis project. I actually just watched a very good documentary that was recently released about the uh, classic UFO whistleblower, Bob Lazar. Yeah, I watched that as well, yeah. Oh, man, that Jeremy Corbell, great filmmaker. Highly recommend that to anybody. Yeah. Uh, look up Bob Lazar, Area 51, and UFOs. And I think there's more reason to believe his story now than ever, that they've definitely been working on this type of thing. However, I don't necessarily 
have to buy the fact that these came from other planets. I'm not against that idea either, but uh, this is sort of a, a fun tangent to be going into at the, at the end here of the free show. But I think it's most likely that humans developed this technology a long time ago, and there's just people who know and people who don't. I mean, I've had several encounters with what you would call UFOs um, quite close. I'm not sure if we talked about that before or not, but... Not enough. Okay. So, yeah, it's a big subject, but my understanding is there are visitors from other lots of other places here, and it's been explained to me, actually... The, the, I mean, there's Bashar, uh, the channeled entity, Bashar.org. You know, I can't prove that they are who they say they are, but they do say a lot of things which I find very interesting. And, and they basically say that the, the planet Earth is is like the most entertaining place in the universe right now. So there's lots of visitors here watching us and, you know, interacting. And there's different reasons for that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are visitors here. And I'm pretty sure there's also vehicles or of consciousness, let's say, light ships, which relate to our ancestors or to technology they had and or we had let's say back then so i think there's a mixture of all these things happening at the same time is yeah it's not so straightforward as you know we might like to think it is but yeah bob lazar and a few other whistleblowers from those kind of s4 and, and area 51 facilities uh they're fairly coherent in what they say the patterns if you map them out they, they match up in terms of time and uh, there's also colonel corso i don't know if you've read his book the day after roswell have you heard of that i've heard of that book but i haven't read it myself Okay, I would definitely recommend it. You can find it for free online. The short summary is that he is dead now, but he basically said he was a colonel in the military, uh, I think it was the Air Force, and he was part of the team who recovered the crashed vehicle at Roswell. And basically, it was all very secret, even within the military. You know, they, most of the people in the military weren't allowed to know about it. And I think he said there was like 13 uh, people in his team who knew about it, and they all agreed that basically the last one to be alive would write a book and tell everyone. That was his version of events. And he was the last one, so he wrote the book. And it describes the technology they took out of the ship, how long it took them to reverse engineer it, what they did with it. And he explains that basically they, a lot of it they put out into society through corporations, as if the corporations had invented these things, when in fact they were reverse engineered from this craft. And they included silicon chips, night vision, what else was there, fiber optic cables, a couple of other things, lasers, I think, as well. And they sort of tried to make it look as if you know, these corporations invented them, but in reality, they hadn't. And you, you know, I mean, I can't prove that's true, but when you uh, sort of look at the timeline of all these different whistleblowers and what they said, they do generally match up pretty well. And, you know, you can actually map out. If, if, if you take it that most of these people are telling the truth and you map it out, then it does fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I've got no reason to disbelieve Bob Lazar. And the guy that I spoke to um, was a little bit unusual and eccentric, maybe, to, from a lot of people's perspective, like maybe the stereotypical physicist might be, but... But yeah, I mean, he, he claimed to have met some of these people and worked with their technologies and he said it worked. So yeah, I'm open to it. And I think having had these encounters myself and realized that we've been definitely lied to regarding these visitors, because if I can see them and people I'm with can see them and they're not very well hidden at all, and they're near military bases, you know, you know that the military bases know about them. So therefore, we've been lied to, full stop. And, and that is the case. So that's kind of the beginning of digging into that rabbit hole and finding out exactly how much we've been lied to. And, and that's why I'm thankful to so many of the whistleblowers that have come out from the military industrial complex uh, to tell their story who, who really do. I mean, there's probably over a hundred easily that high ranking people that have all come out and said, yeah, we've been lying to you for 50 years. Sorry. You know, we've got this technology. They've literally done it all. They've disclosed it all, but you know, most people aren't listening. Yeah. It gets drowned out by all the noise, but there's an abundance of information on these topics both from people that you can verify pretty well and then people where 
you can't exactly verify what they're saying, but it might just jive with everything else that you find out about the subject. My favorite podcast for this type of thing is called Mysterious Universe. Pretty fair and balanced couple of Australian guys that research all kinds of fringe topics, but especially the uh, UFO question and the alien contact, uh, both on the positive and the uh, abduction side. I actually kind of think that at least some of the negative experiences that people are having with these type of beings could be actually fabricated by forces that want us to feel afraid of non-human intelligences and become a xenophobic species instead of just a racially divided species. And so all in all, I think it's definitely a more positive, it's more constructive to have a positive outlook about this type of thing, because for the most part, you would have to think anybody that could figure out the physics to deal with interstellar, interplanetary travel would probably also know some of the basic moral or ethical foundations of how natural law behaves in the universe, which is simply just because all truth is subjective to an extent doesn't change the fact that if you do harm to another uh, being, whether or not they're the same species as you, you're actually harming yourself. So you can argue about the uh, objectivity of truth all you want, but the fact remains that it's all self. So you can only be harming yourself if you harm others and you can only help yourself by helping others but also you help others by helping yourself more directly that old chestnut you got got to have your cup full before you can pass out to others we're, we're nearing the end of the free show it'd be a great time to tell people about eureka i also wanted to plug the whistleblowers series that you've got on steam it because we we're just talking about industry whistleblowers and you've got a great blog collection of articles with a lot of informative references about a variety of topics. I think it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one point about Steam, uh, just uh, an information point is that steamit.com, which many people are familiar with, is is kind of being mothballed a bit now. And it's being, I, I would say, replaced by another site called steampeak.com, which is a lot better version of Steamit. So that's S-T-E-E-M-P-E-A-K.com. Cool. I didn't know about that. It's uh, yeah, it's a lot better. So um, it's a lot better experience. So yeah, definitely. If anybody's using Steam, go and check that out. Yeah. So Eureka.org is my social network that I made. This is another part that I talked about over the weekend. There's actually a big class action lawsuit now against Facebook and Google because of their censorship of cryptocurrencies and uh, preventing people from advertising crypto products on their platforms, uh, which actually breaches antitrust and anti-monopoly laws. So when they um, when Google blacklisted Eureka.org and made it very difficult for me to market it. And I couldn't really fight back because I didn't have a budget. They've now done the same thing to Steam. Um, unfortunately for them, we have a lot of money now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a good chance there's going to be a $300 billion lawsuit against Facebook and Google in process right now. And it's going to be a big problem for them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm positive about next year. You know, it might be a bit of a roller coaster, but in terms of being able to get more marketing, more budget, more traffic, moving through Steam and Eureka, it's looking quite positive. Yeah, so I mean, Eureka is a, a social network that's focused on healing, balancing, and evolving, and it's free to use. It's, I mean, it's centralized, but I control it. I run it, and I don't censor anyone. And I was planning on integrating Steam cryptocurrency into it so that you would get paid for posting on there like you do on Steam at the moment. Uh, unfortunately, due to the current crash in price on cryptocurrency, Steamit Inc., the company that runs the Steam blockchain or programs the core of it, has had to recently lay off most of their employees. So they've had to push back the uh, project they were going to launch in March, which is smart media tokens, uh, which would have allowed me to create my own token and, and integrate 
all these nice features into Eureka. So that's kind of going to be a bit delayed a bit. Hopefully things will pick up fairly soon. So for now, I'm actually, uh, although anyone's welcome to come and join Eureka.org or, or find me on Steam and, you know, you can post away to your heart's delight and we can chat away and create some great content. I'm actually focusing on a project for Steam right now, which is a technical project to help new users create accounts. It's called Steam Passport. And I'm also moving back now to focusing on my book as well, um, which is about language and healing. Yeah, probably we'll see a little bit less blogging and videos from me in the next few months, but hopefully then it will be back at full force once I've completed my uh, my first book. I'm looking forward to that. I will be one of the first to read it and we can talk about it on here. Yeah, no doubt. And the Eureka thing, if I could say something about it to get people to check it out, I find it easier to find the type of information and research that I'm looking for, if it exists on Eureka, there than any other social network. The way that the site works is super great for actually keeping your content in a format where it can be found by others and even referenced by yourself. I mean, if nothing else, making some posts on Eureka is a good place to like have your own digital journal of your own research or, or whatever it is that you're wanting to keep track of information on. And you've personally posted some really great information on there. And I just I find the format to be actually quite searchable and it doesn't feel like posts are collecting dust like the way it, it works on mainstream social media where something from eight months ago you'd have to just scroll through a news feed for eternity until you maybe found it if you didn't if you didn't go brain dead first yeah that, that was definitely um part of the design process was definitely had that in mind and i talk about that quite regularly i, I think it's deliberate basically facebook and google and these sites have, have been designed in the way they are deliberately to prevent people from using them in the best possible way and from working together. So you end up with a short-term memory problem and, and a complete lack of ability to, to use them for informational purposes. So yeah, Eureka was definitely designed to overcome that problem. And I'm glad that you, glad that you like it. I do. I just, you know, I don't get on there and make enough posts. I really should keep uh, putting energy into that, even if it's just a minimal amount. I, I'll, I'll see about that. I, I'm struggling to deal with, uh, social media in general, I kind of, I'm feeling more and more averse to it conceptually, but I know that there's still a lot of potential for information to be shared. And yeah, Eureka is definitely a light in that particular corner of the, uh, the series of tubes we call the internet. But <laughs> let's, uh, let's wrap up this free show. If you've got anything you want to p point people towards right here, that'd be great. And otherwise we'll see you members over on the other side and talk about that class action lawsuit because I'm curious about that and also quite quite a few other things that I have in mind. So yeah, any any last uh, plugs or links you want to share? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to, to hear more from me, then they, you know, at the moment, the best place to go would probably be to steampeak.com slash at sign and then you're a hyphen soul. So U-R-A hyphen S-O-U-L. And that's where I'm, you know, currently most actively blogging and you can find my videos posted there as well. I also put them to YouTube, but, but they always tend to end up on Steam. So that's where you can catch me. Thank you for being with us today and we'll see you on the other side. Thanks for listening.
solstice, my friends. We're done with another podcast, not just another show, but a year. And I really couldn't have picked a greater guest probably to be our last one for the year. Eurosoul has become quite a good friend of mine. One of the big perks of doing this type of a thing like podcasting is that I've got to connect with people like him that I would have probably never, never have met otherwise who are really, really loving and compassionate people. And to be honest, I experienced real healing after this conversation because of some of the things we talked about opening my mind to a different way of looking at myself that helped a lot. And now I am super ready for an amazing 2019. Interverse is really going places next year. I can just tell physically going places and going to new places in consciousness with new guests and returning old guests and finally getting a stabilization of a few recurring people mixed with exploring new ground. Please let me know, though, with the hit me up on social media, send me an email. If you've got someone you'd like to hear on the show, maybe you heard them somewhere else or you know them personally and they've got a great perspective to share. I'm all ears. Hard to imagine that we're already three years into this show. It's crazy how much time and energy I've already put into it. Yet it feels like I've just begun. feels like I only am now learning how to do this thing. Actually, part of what took so long with this episode getting out is that the editing process is kind of arduous. I'm getting to the point where I'm more of a perfectionist because I know a little bit more about the software and how to make it sound somewhat better. And you may have just listened to this episode and thought, hey, didn't sound that great. But I kind of had some troubles to deal with in terms of our connection. Sometimes the series of tubes and wires that connect England to the United States doesn't always transmit the signal all that well. And this was one of those times there were a lot of little weird things I had to clean up in the audio. And so that's my excuse for why it took a couple of weeks this time between episodes. Also, I needed a little bit of a break so I could work on some other projects and just survive this thing we call the holidays Wow, this is a crazy time of year. I'm sure you guys understand that it's hard to even take care of yourself when there's all this extra responsibility put on us. This isn't meant to be like your hacky bit about the holidays being stressful or whatever. It's just a fact that all of us have been under financial burdens that we wouldn't otherwise be experiencing and time burdens just to fulfill this weird materialistic tradition that we're all participating in. I say we're all, maybe you aren't doing it, whoever you are listening right now. Good for you. I still haven't figured out how to get out from under the guilt (laughs) of not participating when all my family members are playing this game. It's weird because the amount of time spent running around shopping and stressing over having the perfect thing for each and every person could have more easily and cheaply and healthily been spent just hanging out with those people. And maybe making stuff for each other, crafting together. I don't know, like a craft party. This is a podcast about about art. So have you ever tried that? Anyone out there, instead of having a gift exchange for Christmas with your family, got together extra times, like a few times throughout the month of December and worked on some sort of collective art project or individual art projects altogether? This is just me brainstorming, trying to imagine something different than running around really busy malls and stores trying to find stuff that somebody's maybe not even going to ever take out of their closet again, or they might return it to give to them. (laughs) I don't know. This holiday is really weird. That's all. It's not exactly what the solstice means to me to be trading gifts like this. To me, what it means is a feeling of renewal 
and invigoration that follows a kind of period of darkness and difficulty. It's not like every winter I get depressed, but I don't know. I feel like there's a pattern in my energy where I kind of go into a wane or a decline as far as my motivation to do what's good for me between the months of, I don't know, September, October, all the way to December. It's just a traditional thing. I have trouble taking care of myself in those months. Like it's not as easy as it is in the springtime or the summertime when it's so nice out. But usually, and this year is no exception, about the time of the solstice, I feel myself turn a corner and all of a sudden I can do it. I can drop a, a bad habit or whatever. Something new can be added to my routine that I know is healthy for me. Or just something old happens to have a stronger effect. Like I was just doing some basic stretching last night and I almost got into the splits for the first time in my life. And I felt this weird release in the back of my glutes and I had all these memories come up. And next thing you know, the next day I was like stronger whenever I was trying to run in the gym. So little things like that, just little releases, that cumulative effect of stretching every day or meditating every day or drawing every day. About now for me, I'm feeling the benefits of the cumulative effect, the 70% effort rule, like we talked about a few episodes ago with Ethan Indigo Smith. How not burning yourself out, but just kind of persistently chugging along. That's the way to do it. That's how I'm trying to do it with this podcast. Although if you want more out of Interverse, you want more episodes faster, I suggest more of you get on patreon.com forward slash Interverse and become a member. Subscribe to the show. That way you can send some of your energy connected to the podcast and help me grow with new equipment. Help me have the resources I need maybe someday start paying guests or in some way compensating guests for coming on the show. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to do, but I need your help and participation through that medium. Maybe pretty soon we'll be able to have a website where you can become a member as opposed to just having to go through the third party of Patreon. I'd even really like to have it set up where you could use cryptocurrency to become a plus member. I see no reason why we shouldn't have that. Maybe I should ask our guest today, Yura Soul, if he could help me program that because I think he's probably got the knowledge and know-how. He does have a membership-based site called Eureka.org that I recommend you guys check out. This is his third time on, so maybe you've heard about Eureka before, but it's still cool. It's still better than Facebook. It's smaller, but it doesn't make it less valuable, especially when you look at it as a research storage and sharing tool. It's really kind of unparalleled. There are other things that are pretty good, but Eureka is awesome. Go check it out. If not for any other reason than to say hi to your soul. What a great guy. I think you loved him. I know I did. It was an awesome conversation about some of my favorite topics. And we really went out there on many limbs that seem divergent, but are actually connected. I love talking about veganism, of course. I hope you guys were okay with that. But most importantly, it was just the whole conversation about getting real with emotions and getting our energy into motion. That's been a real theme of the last year. The fact that sort of negative consciousness consequences live within the pent up energy and tension that's in our body and musculature keeps coming up. It must have something to it. I know I'm experiencing it like I was talking about with stretching a minute ago. There's something to it. <laughs> get that energy moving, get those emotions flowing. And conversations about cryptocurrency and social media are always fascinating to me. And it's been a while since we talked about that stuff. Back to the plus membership pitch, you guys. If you liked the conversation I just had with Eurosoul and you didn't hear the second half, let me give you a rundown of what we talked about in the plus extension. 
First of all, we got into a great talk about how big corporate internet companies censor and control information in sneaky ways and a class action lawsuit that your soul might be involved with that could potentially get a lot of reparations out of Facebook and Google for their censorship of cryptocurrency. We also just talked in general about Google and Facebook versus cement and cryptocurrency companies as part of that conversation about censorship because that's one of their biggest competitions. The powers that be, I mean, cryptocurrency is kind of, it's hard to say if it's completely unplanned by the powers that be, but in some ways it could definitely get out of the box on them. If they, if we take it into our own hands, we could make something really interesting happen with it. I'm hoping to get into crypto next, this coming year, maybe start taking the advice of smart people I know and buying it now while it's a little bit cheaper because it's probably going to blow back up again. It's like the internet of money. So back to talking about what was in the plus extension, we also discussed the connection between our bodily health habits and the external manifestation of the controllers and poison peddlers in our reality and how connected those things really are, that the better we take care of ourselves, the less effect that's going to have on us. And that kind of got us into a conversation about anarchy, the inherent problems with democracy, and how voting on blockchain would at least add some transparency to the procedure. We talked about the two divergent paths humanity seems to be splitting between, the prophecies about that, what it means for the future of the species, and how cryptocurrency-backed social media has the chance to help people in the poorest countries to make ends meet more easily. We got into a really awesome detour discussing the energy ley lines that grid the earth and the incredible ruined temple of Angkor Wat, which Urasol talked about actually visiting, and how such megalithic structures can create actual chakra opening experiences through some sort of unknown architectural technology. This stuff is something I'm fascinated in. This is one of those episodes where if you check the show links, you're going to find all kinds of interesting information and rabbit holes to jump down. Really fascinating stuff, especially the New Earth YouTube channel that I'm linking here, which provides a lot of evidence of a world-spanning, peaceful, and spiritual global culture hundreds of years in the past instead of thousands. We talked a little bit about that in the end of the plus extension and more, much more. I definitely did not, despite the fact that I rambled on about it, I didn't even tell you a fraction of what we talked about in the plus extension. There's plenty there to get into. And if you do join Interverse Plus on Patreon, you not only get a two-hour episode today with your soul, but you have access to the big archive that keeps getting bigger of the double-length episodes from the past. And I like to think this is what you would call evergreen content. I mean, occasionally we talk about some things that are relatively current events, but generally speaking, I like to keep our conversations to a more universally useful level, or at least universally interesting, regardless of the time period. But like I said, there's a lot of links in the show notes that we did talk about, and I do think you should be getting on websites like Steemit. If you have any... <laughs> So I guess self-love when it comes to using social media, you should be interested in this because using stuff like Facebook is not very loving towards yourself. You're mostly just getting exploited and money is being made off you and things like steam it. You can make money off of the time and energy you put into it, which should only make sense because <laughs> your time and energy is valuable. Anyway, I'm done trying to ask you guys to get on plus if you're not. Well, I'll never be done. I will keep bringing it up forever. But that's all we talked about that I want to tell you now. Yeah, I love you guys. Thanks for listening to the show. Please check out the links. Check out some of the videos that are here. The video that Eurosoul just made about decentralizing, 
the internet. Fascinating. Good information for all of us to have. Even if you don't feel like you're some sort of technological architect of the future and the internet, just knowing this kind of thing, you never know when these concepts might apply elsewhere, like the concept of distribution instead of just decentralization. Fascinating concept. It really does apply to more than just the internet. It's a systems theory. Systems theories can be applied everywhere. And you never know who you might be talking to that you say something on one of these topics too that you learned that they needed to know. It's just good to have a general amount of knowledge about all kinds of stuff, especially as an artist or creator, because then you have more imagination to use. You have more points of data to combine, more things to remix. I don't know. I think you probably agree. Hopefully this wasn't too divergent from being about art. Or maybe you guys don't really care that I focus on creativity and art and imagination for this show and you just follow it because you think the conversations are interesting. I really don't know. I haven't had enough feedback to be able to tell. As for me, I do like to focus on those topics, but I like to explore all kinds of extended consciousness content. And as far as this being the last episode of the year, I'm pretty happy with it because to me, this is the most interesting stuff to talk about from ancient ruins to cryptocurrency past, present, and future, and of course, emotional and energetic healing of ourselves and our bodies. And we talked a little bit about flying saucers and UFOs, pretty much everything I like. I think it was uh, a fantastic final episode of the year. Thank you for being with me on Interverse, especially if you've been following it all year or longer. There's going to be a lot more to come, and the future is looking good. And one last thing before I go... Check out the show notes for a link to the music I picked for this episode by Symbolico. So that's it. Love you guys. I'll see you in 2019. Take care out there. The more awareness you have, the more capable you are of surviving and succeeding. Because, I, again, I don't want to leave black boxes in here, empty spaces where you have to have devotion. I'm going to show you the connection. <laughs>